Canterbury fails Their Canterbury fails Probably never read them The Canterbury fails Might be moralistic or boring Might be rhetorically soaring Their Canterbury fails Yeah Hey everybody, whoa Welcome to the Canterbury Fails. I am David Coley. I'm Matt Hussey. And I don't know what episode this is. Nine, ten, eight, something. What is it? Do we I don't know. know. All right, I we're forgot. not on it. But it is a Middle English poem this week. It is. Yep. yep and yep. Uh, so uh, the ball was in my court and I produced the describing of manus membris. Mm. The describing of man's members. I was hoping when I saw the title, that this might be a little bit like a talk of ten wives on their husband's wear. Yeah. But it's not. No. No. It is decidedly so not. In fact, I harbor a little nugget of resentment <laughs> for you. That I, I, I get the title, I lo- I'm like, oh, it'll be something funny and about phalluses. No. Nope. Uh, no, no, no. There's no. There is literally nothing funny or about this poem, or phallic about this poem. We can talk about what this poem does, but let me uh, try to give you a little bit of the context. Yep. Um, and then we're going to get into the drink. And just in case you're joining us for the first time, this is a Holy podcast moly. where we uh, describe a little-known, underappreciated, or appropriately appreciated, yet underloved uh, poem or old English poem. Yep. Uh, and then we uh, match it with a cocktail, and we rate both at the end. So yeah, I'm going to get after, started yeah. after a after a robust, intellectually scint- scintillating Fulsome, conversation. I is the word. That yes, you're for. like light is sh- thrown, shed. Mm. It is shed. Mm. It is there. Yes. Yeah, so new new light on a discreeting. Well, of I mean, the, the, the great thing about the Canterbury Fails is like we could pretty much say anything about the text that we bring onto this show. Yep. And it is shedding light because no one has looked at them for 20 plus years. I'm worried about this one. It's a little <gasps> bit borderline. We'll talk about that as well. But boop, 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 the disgrieving of Manus Membris is a 19 stanza poem. Mm. Uh, each stanza is eight lines with a revolutionary rhyme scheme of A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B. And each of those stanzas barely holds on to a dreadfully Just... uneven iambic tetrameter. Oh um, this poem is in Oxford Bodleian Manuscript Digby 102. And that is a significant manuscript. Um, there are two modern editions. Of, aren't there a lot of lyrics in it? There's a lot of lyrics, and this uh, is one of them. Um, it's gonna take a lot of lyrics. Sorry. Is that was that George Harrison? I think it's a Neil Young song. Oh, which, I was thinking love. it was gonna take a whole lot of time. It's precious no, it's time. Gonna take plenty of time. Is that a Wilbury song? No, that's George. George right. on his own. Okay, sorry. So sorry. there are two modern editions of these. The most recent of them, the one that is now the sort of industry standard, uh, is Helen Barr's The Digby Poems, mm. uh, which she published in 2010. Ooh, um, recent. Recent. Um, before that, it was the 1904 EET edition, EETS edition by J. Kale. That's the one we're using. It's here. not Furnival. It's not Furnival. It's later. <laughs> God, it's later. It's, it's EETS OS one twenty four. That's how exciting this poem is. Um, so I said that this is a borderline fail, and the reason it's a borderline fail is that there have only been two articles that really deal with it at length over the past twenty years: Matthew Giancarlo's "Troubling the New Constitutionalism: Politics, Penitence, and the Dilemma of Dread" in the Digby Poems, mm. and David Rawlinson's "The Specter of Commonality: Class Struggle and the Common Weal in England Before the Atlantic World." Wow. That was in twenty o six. There have, however, been studies on the Digby poems as a whole. Oh, and worse. this this kind of gets mentioned here and there. Yeah, but that there, count. there are Digby poems that 
Get more magic. Get a lot of attention. Yeah. Love God and dread. Truth rest in peace. God keep our king and save the croon. The complaint of man's flesh against Christ. What about a remembrance of 42 follies? Not as much. That's probably my next one. Um, but, you know, there, there are these poems that get attention. But the discreeting of modest members, for reasons that we can talk about, does not get a whole lot well, of this love. Is, and this is why it is a fail. Because it is, I mean... I, who am I to besmirch the the lovely art that David brings to the table here? But <laughs> it is a it is such a just wallpaper poem. It is, it is a wallpaper like, poem. It's just like standardized, you know, like it like it just doesn't do anything interesting. No. I mean, except for its premise, which we'll talk about. But like, even is, that premise is it's run of the mill. Poetically, though. just as as you know, by the numbers yeah. as possible. Yeah. A B A B yeah A B two those those two A B um, so there are two contexts that I think might be interesting in informing our discussion I'm gonna try to lay those out really quickly and then we can get to your drink which yeah, I am sure. quite excited about oh yeah I gotta find my notes on my drink yeah 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 go go so the first the first context is 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 from the manuscript itself so Digby 102 is one of the collection uh, of about 250 manuscripts that was bequeathed in the mid 17th century to Oxford's Bodleian Library by Kenelm Digby. Scientist, natural philosopher, diplomat, antiquarian, intellectual, courtier, on-again, off-again Catholic, erstwhile privateer, waxmonger, and glass manufacturer. And an interesting fact that I have learned about Ken Elm Digby is he is considered the father, and this is important for the Canterbury Fails, the father of the modern wine bottle. Shut the front door! He invented a shape and colored the glass in ways to protect the wine. Oh my god! Uh, and so he is considered the inventor of the modern wine bottle. This particular manuscript is from the 15th century, but the Digby collection has manuscripts the earliest are from the 9th century. There's one from the 9th century at any rate. Mm. And they go up to the 16th. So it's this really important collection of manuscripts up there with Cotton and Harley um, for preserving the sort of textual heritage yep. uh, of the English Middle Ages and the European Middle Ages. It's, it's an important group of manuscripts. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this one contains a complete sea text of Langland's Piers Plowman. Almost complete This manuscript? Uh, Digby 102. It's big. It's a sea text of Piers Plowman for the first, like, 97 folios. Um, then uh, it has the so-called Digby poems, of which today's fail is one. There are 24 of those. Yep. It has Richard Maidstone's paraphrase of the penitential psalms, and then the disputation mm. between body and soul. Mm. Um Simon Horbin argues that the scribe of the Disney 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 D the Disney, Disney manuscript. Yeah. Yep, it's a, it's a, it's a, the Digby manuscript uh, is a clerk working for the London Brewers Guild in the 15th century. Oh, and he's made really interesting arguments about what that says about the sea text of Langland. I mean, you can sort of see how you would connect. I would have changed my drink if I knew it was the Brewers Guild. Well, alas, it didn't. <laughs> um, and so, more proximate to our fail, uh, Helen Barr, in her edition, argues that all 24 of these lyrics. Uh, are probably the work of a single Benedictine monk. Oh. Um, she makes a historicist argument uh, about uh, this. So this is authorship rather than scribal identity. She makes a historicist argument about this, and she suggests as well that this can probably be dated toward the first decade or two of the 15th century, because she finds these poems to be implicitly supportive of Lancastrian claims to kingship. Uh, as regular listeners of The Fails will know, there is something of a cataclysm in 1399. At least it's a cataclysm if you're Richard II. It's a cataclysm uh, if you're a regular listener. <laughs> um, well, you know how the cataclysms are, as cataclysms are. 
But Richard II was deposed in 1399, um, and his successor, his usurper, was Henry uh, Lancaster, who would become Henry IV when he takes the throne. But uh, Henry IV labored under the taint of being a usurper for his entire kingship, and really, until Henry V's sort of dazzling uh, military victories um, in you know 1415 or so, um, the Lancastrian kingship was tainted with the fact that it was not a legitimate line. Mm-hmm. Um, once Henry became massively popular, Henry V became massively popular, then that sort of faded away, but Problem he came back away. in a vengeance uh, with, um, with Henry's premature death and Henry VI's uh, ascension to the throne as a child king. So uh, it was not a long-lived or happy dynasty. But one of the things that they did um, was that they, they, they really sort of, and, and Paul Strom writes about this quite brilliantly, um, is that they really uh, sort of created a kind of machine of propaganda to besmirch um, and to denigrate the previous line, the the Angevin Mm -hmm. line, um, and to talk about the the sort of abuses that Richard II, um, that Richard II sort of participated in on the throne. Um, And wasn't a great king. He wasn't a great king, but what's interesting is it's it's very, very Mm -hmm. difficult now to separate Lancastrian propaganda from from history, history, right? Because so many of the chronicles that we look to for history are you know, Lancastrian partisans. And so you have this really interesting uh, issue where, you know, you know, how can you separate the sort of the real history? I mean, and if you, you could see me, I'm putting that in scare quotes, like the real history from the propaganda. And at this point, it's very, very difficult yeah. to do. And Shakespeare yeah. certainly doesn't help matters. No. Um, and so, you in know, anyway, in, <laughs> so, so, so this is what we've got. Um, so I think there's a really interesting sort of political story that surrounds these poems. And there are ways in which these poems uh, align with the aims of the first Lancastrian kings um, to sure. a- erase that taint of you. Maybe talk about how this one might do that. I think we Although, can. I think we can. So yeah. let's let's just hold that in mind. So that's my first context. My second context is something we've also talked about on the Canterbury Fails, which is allegory. Right. This poem is very clearly an allegory. This is a literary structure where the meaning of the work is generated by the relative correspondence of characters, events, and locations to specific ideas or concepts. And this is a major form in the Middle Ages. It is arguably the medieval form par excellence, particularly in the later Middle Ages. Um, in continental literature, the sort of go-to example. Um, is a 13th century secular allegory, The Romance of the Rose, uh, which was started by Guillaume de Lurie and brilliantly continued by Jean de Meun. Um, but this is obviously, you know, part and parcel of biblical exegesis as well. Allegory is this incredibly flexible form in the Middle Ages. Um, and in England, you know, we get, you know, ma- in, in the later Middle Ages, we get massive allegorical texts like Langland's Piers Plowman, which is in this volume, right, in Digby 102, there is a sea text of Pierce Plowman here. Um, Maidstone is an allegorist as well, uh, mm. and he's um, he's bound in this, in this volume. Um, we get more implicit allegories like Pearl, which is allegorical, but it also, you know, has elements of other uh, forms, elegy, remembrance, and so forth. Um, And then, you know, we get sort of allegorical moments within, you know, Chaucer's dream visions and so forth. So, I mean, the allegory really does suffuse later middle English and later medieval writing. And of course it persists into the early modern period when you have things like Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, which is a massive political religious allegory. Right, well, I mean, it persists into the the modern age when you have something like Animal Farm. Right. I mean, so oh, yeah, the yeah. allegory does not sure. really go away. No. Um, but it is a it is a, it is a huge and important form in the Middle Ages. <clears throat> Let me just throw into this mix yep. that uh, this allegory is in no way as complex or as interesting as 
<laughs> Here's Plowman, The Pearl, the Animal Farm, the Animal Farm, or Spencer, or Aesop's the, Fables. Like is, I mean, this is the most rote one-to-one correspondence yep. of. Well, we can talk about that too. So, so here's the thing. This, this, the way that this poem works is it compares Manus Membris, man's parts, his body to the body politic. Yes, and this is also a standard trope in. You know, Western Everything. literature. I mean, it's in, you know, we, we get a lot of this in Roman allegory that it gets picked up and, and, you know, through, it gets back into the English Middle Ages the same way so much gets back into the European Middle Ages yeah. through Arabic translations of classical texts. Yeah. Um, it gets picked up and developed. Um, and so the idea with the body politic is that the, 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 the sort of polis, the, 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 the civicus, the polis is the Republica. itself conceived of as a body. Right. The king is invariably the head of that body. The knights are the arms. Invariably the arms. And, and then, so forth. you know, and, and, and it goes on. Now, sometimes in, in you know, better executed versions than this one, that can be clever and interesting and funny. You know, somebody always has to be its anus. Somebody has to be its genitals. I mean, those are, you know, it's open to humor. It's open to that kind of subversion. Not this here. Not do that, <laughs> right? I mean, and so what you've got here is, you know, the king is the head, the the knights are the arms, the clergy or the judges are the neck that turn the head and direct his gaze. Yeah. Like it is just this rote thing. Um, well, my favorites, the ribs are the men of law. Yes, yes, and of course the thighs. The thighs are, are, are artisans and no, the, 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 the calves are artisans. The thighs are merchants. The feet invariably plowmen, and then there are servant's toes or toes that are servants. Yeah. The only thing that I think is interesting here and we should definitely drink to this in a minute. So I'm going to finish up my sort of little well, I was going to say my little rap taking away my deal here. But the, the the only thing that I think is interesting about this is that I think the direction of allegorization in this poem is reversed. This poem starts up. out the head elikna to a king. Sure. The head I liken to a king. But the standard way that this poem is written is that the king is like the head of the body politic. Oh. Right? So this is not a description of the body politic as manus membras. It's, it's a description of, the, of manus of membras the body as the body politic. As a politic. And that strikes me as slightly weird. That's cool. Let's talk about that. We can talk about that, but let's get just a little bit tight first. Okay, well, today's drink took some working, and I and I, I worked. I worked. I labored like the toes on the body politic. <laughs> um, so this, this cocktail is fitting for two reasons. One, it's called the body politic. Is it really? So there we go. And two, it has seven ingredients. Whoa. And and listener, let me just read you the first stanza of and this masterwork. Before, before you read this, I should apologize. I just gave my dog his ball because he has been whining because I put it up somewhere that he couldn't reach. So if there is that sound of a bike tire inflating, that is our third podcaster. That is Appa. Oh my God, he's so into it. All right. Whereof is model mankinda? Of seven things, and it be socked. <laughs> Earth and water, fear and wind, thereof is the body rocked. The soul of Frey that hath <laughs> the mean so of leaf failing and of thought. The soul fro, fro the body unbend when on of these lacketh ocht. All right, so, okay. so the body's made of seven things. Those seven things are earth, fire, uh, wind, and water, sorry. Um, and uh, then 
there's three more, which is the soul, that is mind, Life. feeling, and thought. Yes. Right? So this drink has seven ingredients, mm. um, and uh, each corresponds. I did the corresponding. I did the, the, the recipe doesn't So this, have this drink has an allegorical. I'm going to allegorize it. Allegorize this drink for me. No one's allegorized Do it. Do it. Tell me. Right? So the earth is the vermouth. Wow. The air is the chartreuse. The fire is the bourbon. The water is the absinthe. The now we get to the threefold soul here. Mm. The uh, life is the Peugeot's bitters. Ooh, Peugeot's bitters. I like bitter. Peugeot's bitters. Um, thought is the Angostura bitters, and feeling is the lemon. So does this have? Does this have? Is this a little Sazeracy kind of? Well, I mean, it's I got mean, a lot of some of the things, stuff but is in it. not a lot of. I mean, Sazerac doesn't have. Sazerac has brandy, right? right? And it's raw and syrup. And yeah. Let's uh, chin chin. Let's it. try it, chin. Papa, buddy. That's actually very good. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? Yeah, I like that a lot. That's great. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can get, I can get to that. Give one to my, give one to my dog, and maybe he'll settle down. Papa, do you want a body politic? Anyway. So I like that. The describing of Manus members not weak. Well, I mean, you, you I told you it was in it. It's overproof bourbon. It's overproof bourbon. I mean, it's you know. What bourbon did you use? Uh, I used uh, Booker's. Oh, did you? Yeah, I had a little Booker's left, so I threw oh, the Booker's down. That's All right. Good. So here we go. Um, okay, so tell me about this reversal. What does this reversal imply? I mean, I well, I don't know. That's why I, this is sort of I'm throwing it out there mm. because you know, on the one hand, you're exactly right. What you were saying about this poem about it being like completely run of the mill is it, it is. I mean, listen, it goes. It goes like the head. I mean, we already did this, but it's the head yeah. is the king. The heavenly the arm is to a king. Yeah, yeah. Now leakna manus breast to priesthood. Elikna the neck much of meat that body and heaven together connect yeah. to a Eustace. Yeah. Right, like it is really, really. Really, right. exactly what you'd think. It is the, the hands are the the squires, the arms are the, the ribs are the men of law, the the legs are the artisans, the feet are the plowmen, right? So it's it's so it's it's profoundly statically hierarchical. It is so in that way. I see it as very politically conservative, right? Because it is attempting to keep everyone in their place, yes. and it also does that. In, oh, sorry, go ahead. Just because, well, just to finish that, when we know that post-plague England yep. in the later Middle Ages started to have some mobility, right? Yeah. Some semblance of mobility. Um, so this is clearly a poem that reinscribes the proper hierarchy. Well, and that too, I mean, if we're thinking about this in terms of its political propaganda, that too is mm -hmm. part and parcel of the appeal of the Lancastrians, right? I mean, these are, you know, I, I kind of despise the Lancastrians. They're, they're, they're like sort of the law and order guy. You know, I, I, it's, that, it's that candidate <laughs> that wins, right? Um, and so, you know, they come in and they want to return religious orthodoxy. That's, you know, Henry the Fourth is the hammer of the Lollards, all yeah. this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so this, I think, is very much there. of a piece with although, that. Although, let's, let, I mean, let's be honest, like, Richard would want to see himself as the head as well, right? He would want to see himself as the head, too. I mean, I, I don't think it's... it's. I and mean, he might want to chop off, say, the arms, because those, <laughs> his barons were always <laughs> revolting. Because they kept choking him. But, I mean, this this certainly um, is conservative in that way. Like, politically conservative. It's also socially conservative in yes. so far... I mean, it does this in, in stanza 10, which I think is such a 
sort of grody moment in the poem. Where, toes you know, helpeth man. Toes helpeth man to reason. He may not stand that hath no tone. Let lep ne rena ne rin ne seize rustle ne facht ne put to the stone. If servant the master refuse, the servant leeing son were gone. And maestress, look, they been weese. Without a servant, leave not alone. Right. So it does this, I mean, it makes this kind of ham-fisted gesture Lord. toward... I'm so sorry. Don't worry. We, it's, Bloody, we, come I mean, it's, it's now it's an expected ambiance oh, of our podcast. The, no, that the dog has that squeaky ball. Buddy! I mean, I try to give him other things, but they, they click, they squeak. Um, anyway, I mean, there's this sort of ham-fisted gesture to, like, the king is important, but so too are the servants important, because without the servants, the king cannot stand. But you can live without a foot. You would do far worse without a head. Right. And so there is, you know... The, <laughs> Unless you're a blemia. <laughs> right, in which case, <laughs> the, the, you know, then you would you would do not well without your rib bows. I mean, yeah. the hierarchy is is implicit here, and that's obviously a part of the way that the body politic is always construed. That's always sort of adheres to this yeah. metaphor. Yes. But there is always also the gesture of, you know, it is the manus body whole and Hala that you know without and disease yeah. without and I mean and know, it opens in, in that first stanza that I read I mean the other it, it makes a gesture like you're suggesting towards the like one can't be without the other right if, right it, what does it say like in that first stanza it's literally like if if we don't have them all you know one of the the bot the soul leaves right right if unless it's all put together properly if one is lacking right then you die Right, so the body politic suffers and dies if any of these pieces are missing, which suggests that everyone's equally important. But obviously, <laughs> that is completely not the case here, right? Right. Like, because one is the head and one is a toe. Right. So, I mean, I get that. But you can't stand without toes. I mean, it, yeah, it's no, it's it's bullshit. Like, I mean, it's just clearly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, as to the sort of like reverse allegorization, which which I think is, I didn't even notice that because I, I mean, I just. I wouldn't have noticed. Well, it. You, you sort of glaze over when you read the thing. <laughs> it's not that long, but I mean the um, that move, that move where the head comes first. So, so I think it posits. I mean, when I try to think about that, just that you brought it up, like that it posits, perhaps unintentionally, the centrality of the body. Right, the body is the primary foundation of epistemology, knowledge, truth. Right. Um, <laughs> The um, the um, and, and instead of working backwards to the body, we're talking about like the the premise for society yeah. is the body. So yeah. it might actually insist upon the what 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 is it the biopolitic the yeah. the um what is the the zoological oh god what am I thinking of anyway it's going to insist on the primacy of the, of the physical body as the foundation for understanding the world yeah. by doing it in that reverse order as opposed to what we might normally see in a medieval text where the concept comes first right. and then the body is just an instantiation of that yeah i mean I, I mean so to put that in a different way i think this naturalizes the metaphor right i mm -hmm. mean it, 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 this is this is simply you know, it, it's not it, it's almost that it's not a metaphor Right. right. That, that, that this is actually the way that our bodies are constructed, that we ourselves are constructed in ways that comport with this understanding of the political world. Right. The structure that follows it. Right. So, right. Um, I mean, the, the other, I, I mean, I, it, admittedly, this poem is, you know, it is, it's a trot or whatever. I mean, it just, it just like works through this bit by bit. And there's very little 
there's very little poeticism that to like would that subverts or undermines or complicates things very much, right? It's not. I mean, there's no turn of phrase or metaphor that makes me go, "Oh yeah, that's a little there was, inside." I, I, there was no moment in this where I like underlined a line where I was like, "That's really interesting." Yeah, that's no. really great. I, I didn't think about that. I mean, it's every single move that it makes is. I thought. I guess one thing that I thought was interesting was the this, toes, the servant toes. No, the mouth. The mouth becomes this. It reminded me yep. of, of the of the, the that partner speech in the tale. Where well, and the womb the, too. That reminds me of that. The, the old, Martin, the the oh, Bellio stinking yeah, 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 I had that written down. So the mouth becomes this sort of like subversive. Yeah, right. Because it drinks, it eats. It's loose in speech. Like the the mouth becomes the sort of part of the body that is unruly. Right, but then right. they just, but they just, they just essentially lock it back into you know the thing to do is to be moderate mouth. Yeah, and then the mouth is like, okay, I'll be moderate, and that's it. Like it's yeah. not. I mean, but it does suggest that. Um, that human appetite, yep. right? Be it for drinking or for eating or for speaking or you know, you know, saying things, that that um, has the potential to disorder this this whole this hierarchical whole. So we really wanted to pick at that then, because Let's, that that that, that did strike pick, me as interesting too. That moment, because there ain't much else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the the mouth is the thing. There is there is this section toward the end of the poem. I, I don't want to read it because it's dreadful. But there is this section toward the end of the poem mm-hmm. where the mouth eats too much and drinks too much, and all of the other limbs get all like you know fuzzy because yeah, they, they can't you know, do it, shit. It, it drank too much and yeah, ate yeah. too much, and the womb is like an endless bottomless pit, and then the legs get weary and the eyes cannot see and the ears cannot hear because... The body politic wants a nap, dude. Right, the body, the body politic <laughs> has just knocked back seven or eight body politics and it wants to lie down, right? Yeah. And we, we've all been there. Um, but the thing that's interesting about this is that early in the poem, the mouth is specifically within the king's domain. So in stanza yeah. two, the head elikna to a king for highest lord sovereign of all, hath four to his governing muth, and, mouth, nose, and nose, and eyes, and ears. And ears. Right. So the king is in charge of the senses. I guess one of the ways that we could perhaps make this poem more interesting, or perhaps sort of bring a, a sort of political reading to it that that might lend, if not an air of subversion to it, at least something that's more interesting than just the standard body politic metaphor, mm-hmm. is that the king is in charge of that mouth. Right, and that the king—it's it's an aspect of the king. Yeah, and so that the king—that the mouth is to the king's being. It is he is in control of it. So in some way, the fact that the poem, for at least two of its nineteen stanzas, really leans into the damage that an uncontrolled or unconstrained mouth can do to the body politic, in a way that it doesn't lean into like my gangrenous limbs or you right. know what when my toes when I have gout or something like that. It, right. Which won't corrupt the whole. No. Whereas the mouth will. The mouth will. So, I mean, there is a way in which this poem ascribes responsibility to the king. That it, I mean, you know, but inadvertently. Clearly inadvertently. Well, that, I mean, I guess that's the question. I, yeah. No, I see I, this as completely inadvertent. I see this... It's inadvertent. This, <laughs> but, I mean, it's, you're not, that, that doesn't change the fact that it's interesting, right? Like, So it makes sense. Of course, the head rules over the rest of the body. It should keep things disciplined and moderate. But... The mouth goes unruly, and you're thinking, "Oh yeah, the king should do control all the bodily sort of functions and run the body politic properly." But appetite, desire, those things, those things are unruly and subvert. Yeah. 
And I don't think the thing that the poem means to show us right. that, that the king's wayward desires can end up fucking up the body politic, but that's clearly the case. Yeah. Right? Like, it's clearly the case that if a king is corrupt or debauched or whatever, like, that the, 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 the state won't run properly. Right. Right? Well, there's a there's a wonderful, and I wonder how this sort of fits. I mean, if if that is in fact the case, right? Like, mm-hmm. let's assume that this is not intentional. That this is I can't. Just, it's just it's. I don't. The I'm, poet is not in that kind that's of control. The beauty, okay, but this is the beauty of allegory. Like allegory can be such a boring form because everything maps onto something else and it forecloses on meaning in this weird way. But but it always breaks. It breaks. It always breaks. Yeah. And when it breaks, it's interesting. That's the only really one of the only I mean except for like in Dante or something like it's the only time that it is really interesting. It's like when when the when the allegory itself, which is a linguistic game, right. when it is subject to the pressures of actual movement, change, activity, conflict, right. like a mouth that gets hungry, then that's when you're like, well, if we follow the logic through, which allegory always demands you do, right. it becomes a much more compelling and telling form. And so, I mean, there are there are allegorists, Langland, obviously paramount among them, but he who purposely breaks purpose, their allegories. Exactly. Right. But the, you're saying that this is not <laughs> this is not an allegorist that it, it's the slippage. Is per- it's so the this slippage is, it's, that yeah. makes it beautiful. Yeah. It makes it interesting. So, like, I think of like you're absolutely right. Langland is Langland says he knows that. Right. He knows that in advance. But and let's say he does like it on Bunyan. purpose. <laughs> Pearl, likewise. I think Pearl deliberately oh, exploits right. this slippage between allegory. <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress does not. Pilgrim's Progress works so hard not to, but it can't help but fail. Right. Allegory is always, it seems to me, always a form of failure. Yeah. And it is in those failures that we see the sort of most interesting things come through. So this is a moment of failure in this allegory. Mm-hmm. It gestures toward this broader, I mean, you almost want to call it a truth. I mean, it gestures toward a, a sort of That's what allegories always do. Saying, index a truth. Right? But this is, but it, but it gestures towards one that it doesn't seem to mean to gesture toward. It can't toward. help it. Yeah. But I mean, I, th- I think I, when I, sometimes I teach um, uh, Mankind, right? Which is an allegorical yeah. morality play, yeah. right? Where... I think that guy, I think the Mankind author is in control in a way that this author is not. That play really knows what it's doing with those devils. It, it's, it's really funny and interesting, but it's those, when I ask my students to be like, what does it mean that we are mocking mercy? Right. And what does it mean when, when the audience participates in laughing at mercy, this form of mercy, and who is mercy portraying, and what does it stand for? Like, it is this moment where there is this slippage, this breakage, and I agree. I think that the mankind poet, dramatist, playwright, whatever the, that the mankind, the mankind, <laughs> the mankindest. Um, I mean, I think that well aware, like cannily aware. Well, it has to be. I mean, the, the, the poem is developed around that break. The poem but, is developed around the, or the, the play is developed around the fact that you want Tivillas to come to the stage. Yeah, you, you pay for that. You give money. For yeah. That, right? Oh yeah, and they exploit. Yeah, and 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 I, I'm not convinced. That a po- the, the allegorist of this poem is intentionally exploiting that, but I do think that that slippage still occurs. Yeah. But I guess it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if it's I intentional it's right. or not. I think, no, it's I think that's fascinating. Right. It's, this is what the poem does. It's, and then, so it ends up saying something about kingship. Yeah. So there's a brilliant book. I think it's a brilliant book anyway, um, by Jenny Nuttall. It's about 15 years old now, um, called uh, something about Lancastrian kingship. Um, 
it's published Cambridge. Um, it's really, really good, and I can't think of the title, and I feel bad. So, Jenny Nuttall, if you're our listener, I apologize. Um, she'll let us know. <laughs> she'll write in. She should um, do. But she makes a case um, using the political uh, philosophy of, of Pocock um, oh. that the that the way that the Lancastrian deposition worked and then played out was that the, the, the things that the Lancastrian propagandists used to criticize the Ricardian regime mm-hmm. became standards to which they, oh, themselves they themselves couldn't were forced to be held. They couldn't right? That too is a them. kind of slippage. It's what the CIA would call blowback, right? Yeah. I mean, there's this sort of there's this sort of moment like where you depose Noriega and then all hell breaks loose because what's waiting is worse. I mean, it's that yeah. kind of moment. And so, I mean, I, I find this poem to be in some ways participating in that discourse. Mm. Um, you know, the the, the, the the description of the the description of the body, the description of the mouth, the description of, you know, the, 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 these become standards mm-hmm. by which the body needs to be judged. Right. Um, and so, I, I again, that, that that moment that you're pointing at, the, the mouth, um, is I think really really interesting. Um, okay. Well, I I mean the only and so. So I, I'm so that I think that's I mean I didn't know this about the poem when we started it and I didn't know a, you know that we would end up going this direction. But the other thing I would add, the only other thing I would add about this thing that's I think interesting is gender. This is, I mean, manus membris, right? It is I a know. gendered male all the way that the body politic has no slot. There's no part of the body that can be a woman. No. It is the weirdest thing that there's this gap, aporia, there's a blind spot to, to bring in some early French feminism. There is a blind spot, right, that this poem just just doesn't even think to acknowledge. Yeah. Like, so I don't know, what do you make of this gender, of the, the completely gendered nature of the body politic? Like, that, it's it, both, that it's both gendered and also genderless. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't... On the one hand, it is... Does it just reaffirm that our notions of like the way political power was meted out in the Middle Ages? It's a patriarchy. I mean, I think on the one hand, it does. Uh, I think on the one hand, it absolutely just lets that happen. I, I mean, and I think it reaffirms it a little bit, a little bit like the broken allegory. It's not like Langland, the kind of willful reaffirmation. I think it's no. just absolutely swimming in that water and it doesn't recognize that it's even doing that kind of work. Um, so, I mean, I do think it's unconscious, but again, as you pointed out about the allegory itself, that doesn't really matter. The poem is the thing and the poem is what's making this happen. Um, and so I think, you know, it erases fully half of the population in this body. And, um, and, 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 and the aspects, sorry, just to, I mean, not to drive this home, but like, no, 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 I just drive it home, man. Aspects of the population, being people in the population who were doing the very things that this poem yes. talks about. They were, women were artisans, women right. were merchants, women were doing this and, work. And interestingly enough, scribally, women were brewers. Um, oh, and right, this is a brewing And this is a brewing, brewer. I mean, and, and, and a brewing guild would have known that women were brewers. Um, and, and they would have so, participated in yeah. that. There is, what's, the other thing that's very interesting about this um, is that almost contemporary with this poem um, is another body politic allegory by a woman and a brilliant woman, uh, Christine de Pizan, um, oh, who writes the book of the body the real politic. Deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she allegorizes the body politic in ways that are That's right. aggressively 
opposed to this kind of basically gender blindness I right. think if we if we could call it that that the the, um, the the standard body is a male body yeah and so that she she works against that in the same way that she's you know in, in the same she way she works against city of ladies in the same way that I mean she's she's amazing and she takes and down the romance that is not a Canterbury fail um, no right, like, that is, we cannot talk about <laughs> we, we should barely even mention that because it's so great but um you know, she's writing and using and subverting willfully yes. this allegory in ways that I think this allegorist, this, you know, if we if we buy Barr's argument, this sort of Benedictine monk um, in the... In the you, <laughs> you know, that, that he's just, he doesn't recognize that he's even doing that no, work. No. But the poem is clearly doing that work. And I think it is a kind of erasure, um, even if it's not intentional. I just don't think this monk, I mean... <laughs> it's historically telling. Yeah, it's it, just historically it, it telling, is, like intentional or not. It and is, it's, it's also symptomatic of its moment. It's also symptomatic of the Lancastrian regime as well. Mm. I mean, if we want to think about this in those kind of political terms, the Lancastrian regime was, you know, a return to a kind of not just a kind of patriarchy because the patriarchy never went away, um, but it is a return to a kind of serious sort of phallocentric masculinist rule. I mean, you know, I mean, Richard was excoriated for his womanliness. Yeah, that's right. For his um, for his effeminacy, there were mm. aspersions that, you know, he was involved with men. I mean, it, you know, I mean, he and so the Lancastrians, you know, came on the scene with their bushy beards and the whole nine and they pushed him to the margins. Um, I mean, really, if you I look like beard. at beard, beard can go a couple directions. Oh, there. I know. <laughs> right. But if you look at I mean, I mean, the, the, you know, I mean, you've you've seen these images and, you know, listener Google Richard the second Westminster portrait or Wilton Diptych and. You know, Richard is always depicted, even in his sort of regal portraits, as, you know, almost adolescent. Because right? he was a boy king! But he was a boy king, but he was... He did hang out for a while. He hung out for a while. I mean, he was, he was, put, in, he was put on the throne in, what was it, 77? <clears throat> so he ruled for 22 years, yeah. and he ascended it at, at is he 11? I'm, I'm, I should have written this down. Um, well, let's but, see, he was, wasn't, he, wasn't he 14 at the Peasants' Revolt? Yeah, so he would have been 11. 30, 77, 11, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, he, so he was deposed in his late 30s or when he was like 40 or something like that. Yeah. So we're not talking about somebody who could not grow a beard, but the, the iconography that surrounds him, and I he use the word iconography advisedly because those portraits, the Wilton Diptych and the Westminster portrait, are icons. They are clearly meant to be icons. They were designed to... I mean, Richard was very invested in this sort of... You know, almost a kind of proto-divine right of kings. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he got crazy, man. right? I mean, and you know, he's anointing himself with oil as he's like sitting there in the, you know, prisoner in yeah. <laughs> in Bordeaux. I mean, or or in where did he? Where was he? Pontefract. Um, you know, I mean, he's he, he obviously wanted to create a, sort of to fashion himself in these kind of div divine yeah. terms. But the iconography is, he's always beardless. He's always smooth faced. He's womanly. He's beautiful. Um, and when you look at, at images of Henry, um, you know, and you look at images of Henry the fourth, especially the masculinist uh, right. sort of aspect of it is there. So I do wonder if that's again, a part of this, but I mean, you know, only in the most sort of like, again, like you the, said fish in the water. The, if the poem does it, the poem is, 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 is a part of that environment. Yeah. Um, but I don't yeah. feel like this is an allegorist that's in control of that kind of aspect of his craft. So. No, I think he's, yeah, he's just expressing what's at the case. So I think it's time to rate. All right. So we have one to seven members. I get to choose the scale. Oh, wait, you get that's to right. Step right back. Sorry. There. Yeah, I'm going to choose between one and seven. <laughs> 
parts of man as a different different from from Coley, who's talking about members. I'm talking about the, the seven aspects of man. So it's the scale from one to seven for this poem. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give it a two, and only a two because I was kind of come in with a one, but. The way that it slippages with allegory that came up in this conversation yeah. sort of made it more interesting to me. and I, So I'm going to give it a two. I will join you in that, too. I think that's a very appropriate rating for this poem. Um, it is, you know, again, one of the things that we often talk about here and that I like to talk about because I imagine that at least one of our listener is actually, you know, teaching and thinking about, what you know, could I use this in the classroom? Is this a teachable text? I think it is a teachable text as a kind of ancillary text. I think to, you know, show this as a kind of example of, of allegory, the way that it works, it oversimplifies it. You could you could show that sort of break that we talked about. I think pedagogically this could be really interesting. Oh, there you go. But, a redemption narrative, an old school Colleen yeah, redemption narrative. But it doesn't but it doesn't really redeem it all that far. You spend a day on Can this. Can you be partly redeemed? Oh, you can be partly redeemed. Is that right? Only part of my body. One one member is redeemed. <laughs> my nose. You will go can to choose heaven. your your servant's right. toes. Um, I get to rank the cocktail now. No, I get to rank oh, the cocktail, shit, and do. that is this is without a doubt a seven member cocktail mm. or seven part of mankind cocktail. This was delicious. I was enthused when you started telling me what was in it. I didn't know you can mess those proportions up, but you did not. The lemon zest. Really does a nice job uh, with the with the sort of nose. It's on the glass. It's pretty. It's a, we we didn't talk about. Yeah, it, it was like it's a kind of coppery, beautiful peachy sort of, color. Yeah, I was. I mean, I wanted to say sort of straw color, but it's That's not. The, well, you know how pink peshodes are. Yeah, they are. It's bright, so it, it does. It gives it this kind of. I don't know. You guys remember the Crayola crayon sets where there's burnt sienna? Oh. This is kind of burnt sienna. Oh, I like that. It's beautiful. Luminous. It's delicious. It is strong. I'm feeling it already, and I'm loving it. So okay. this is a seven-member cocktail. I actually will also give it seven. I thought it was delicious. I love the um, combination of absinthe and lemon. Bright, bright, bright nose. And then the sort of thick richness yeah. that you get from the vermouth and the... Uh, well, you used a and beautiful the, bourbon. And the bourbon, yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite bourbon. It's a really deep, yeah. uh, deep cocktail. Like, it's 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 good. And, you know, it sat on ice for a long time, which might have actually helped. I think because, that's right. <clears throat> but um, I, I would also give it seven. So that is this episode. That's yeah. a wrap on this episode of uh, the, the Canterbury, Canterbury Fails. Fails. Next time, and there's going to be a little break. Cause... Oh, yeah, because my illustrious colleague mm. is off illustriousing again. Um, we're gonna. There's going to be a little longer than normal hiatus between episodes, so I know. You know what you can do? You can just go back and listen to reruns. I get it. I get it. We've all been there. I mean, how many times have you sat down and watched the Jeffersons? Like... Just... Oh, they are moving on up. So, um, so, yeah, so it'll be a little while before our next episode, but we will be back with an Old English text. Thanks for listening. We will not forget you.